Welcome to episode 34 of the Atlanta Man Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Rogers. Gotta catch my breath after that one. And on today's episode, we have a lot to talk about, a lot to touch on. Conference championship and college football happened over the weekend. The Falcons played in a professional football game. The Hawks played a week of basketball and the Braves have some sort of transactionary news over the past week, but we will start off the episode with conference championship weekend and college football. The conference championship games happened, they were played, and now we have a college football playoff. Um, Big games this weekend, Georgia-Alabama obviously, Michigan took down Iowa, Cincinnati took care of business and beat Houston. Um, pulling up the games right now. And uh, we will start to get in to the action. We'll start off with the big one. Uh, the, the biggest one of them all. Georgia and Alabama in the SEC championship game. Uh, Georgia actually got off to an early lead in this one. They led 10 to nothing at one point. Um, but then Alabama proceed, proceeded to go on a 41-14 to run to end the game. Um, Alabama just dominated Georgia pretty much. Um, Georgia, the most points they had given up all season, was 17 to Tennessee. And Alabama hung 41 on them. Bryce Young was unreal. 26 of 44, 421 yards, three touchdowns. Um... Jonathan Mechie was great in this game. Jamison Williams was awesome. Uh, he was our leading receiver with seven catches, 184 yards, and two touchdowns. Uh, Brian Robinson was very good out of the backfield also for the Tide. And, um, yeah, Alabama just exposed this Georgia defense that was um, so highly talked about all year. Um, you know, the one the one gripe on Georgia was they – they didn't have the strongest of schedules. And, I mean, the one game that they played this year against a supposed-to-be power school was Clemson, and they turned out to be not the Clemson of usual. Um, so, I mean, going through Georgia's schedule, like the toughest team they played this year was Arkansas. And, I mean, Arkansas was good this year, but, uh, yeah, like that's, um, that is just not a, not a tough, tough opponent. Alabama was the best in the play this year, and they just gashed them left and right all game and really just dominated them. I mean, Georgia went up 10 nothing in this game, but then like like as soon as Georgia pretty much um, scored the touchdown and go up 10 nothing, it was just um, all downhill from there for them, which made me quite happy, for being honest, my biased opinion. Um, so, yep, Alabama beats Georgia. They are in the playoff. Georgia's also in the playoff. We'll get into the other games with playoff implications. Um, like I said, Michigan beat Iowa 42-3. to So, really not much to talk about in that one. Michigan just dominated therein. Like I said, Cincinnati took care of business against Houston with a 35-20 to victory. Um, they get in as the four seed. And the only other game that could have had some bearing was Oklahoma State and Baylor which Baylor won on a last-second defensive stop at the goal line, which was just an absolutely incredible sequence of plays. Um, you know, running towards the pylon line was uh, Oklahoma State's running back, and he was just about an inch short, 
Baylor hangs on to win 21 to 16. They win the Big 12. Um, if Oklahoma State would have won this game, would have probably been like a bit of a discussion if they should get in over Cincinnati, but that would not be necessary because they lost. And the playoff is set. Alabama jumps all the way to number one. Michigan stays at number two. Georgia falls to number three. And Cincinnati stays put at number four. So that makes the playoff games go as followed. Alabama versus Cincinnati in the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic on New Year's Eve at 3.30. And Georgia and Michigan in the Capital One Orange Bowl at 7.30 on New Year's Eve. And uh, by the way, quick sidebar, I hate that these games are on New Year's Eve. There's, I'm pretty sure they've all been on New Year's Day for the past few years. I don't know what the reasoning that they're not on New Year's Day is. This is kind of the thing you do on New Year's Day is you watch the football college football playoff. I don't love that these games are on New Year's Eve, honestly, but we'll make do. Um, yeah, those are the matchups. Alabama opens up as a 13.5-point favorite against Cincy, and Georgia opens up as a 7.5-point favorite against Michigan. So, you know, we'll get um, we'll get more into these games as they um, get closer. Uh, we're still a few weeks out from them. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited for it. I'm excited that Cincinnati got in. I think, um, you know... First group of five team gets in, and um, you're in the playoff. Here's Alabama. Let's see if you belong. I like that. Um, I like that they're, they're going to get the chance to prove themselves over the biggest powerhouse in the history of college football. And, I mean, they I don't think they're going to win, but I do think there's a way Cincinnati can make this a competitive game for sure. Um, but there's also many ways Alabama can just blow their doors off and make it look like a power five team should never be in this four-team playoff. Uh, but I'm, I'm really rooting, I'm rooting for Cincinnati to win. Um I don't think they will, but I, I'm at least rooting for them to make this a competitive game and not just uh, embarrass the group of fives in this, which I think is definitely a possibility. And Georgia-Michigan, um, I think it's obvious where my allegiances lie in this game. I am a big blue all the way. Hassan Haskins is going to run all over that that piss-poor defense. Cade McNamara is going to throw all over just like Bryce Young did, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a blowout all the way for Michigan. Um, kidding, but I do think Michigan can win this game. I think they're playing as good as football as anybody right now in these past two weeks. I, mean, I know Iowa isn't great, but they dominated Ohio State the week before. So, um, yeah, I think Michigan is very capable of winning this game uh, for sure. So we'll get more into depth with those games as they approach on New Year's Eve. Um, but for now, we're going to move on and talk about a little more football. This football happened in the NFL, and it is the Falcons and the Buccaneers. Um, Falcons lost this one 30-17. They get swept on the season by Tampa for the second year in a row. Fall to 5-7. and seven. Um, Kind of dampering playoff hopes even more with this one. Um, still not completely out of it, but uh, definitely not looking good. Uh, this game was actually pretty competitive in the first half. I'll say that. Um, Tampa Bay went up 7-0, but Atlanta immediately went right down the field, and Mike Davis had a 17-yard touchdown to tie it up. Um, Cameron Brait had a touchdown catch from Tom Brady, but they missed the extra point, making it 13-7. Falcons made it 13-10 with a field goal. Uh, the Bucks made it 20-10 with four minutes or five minutes left in the second quarter uh, with a touchdown to Gronk. But with 22 seconds left in the second quarter, Marlon Davidson picks off a screen pass to Leonard Fournette. Um, 
and it was the pass was thrown about the three yard line, so it was a walk in touchdown for Davidson, and that made it twenty to seventeen right before halftime. And Falcons got the ball after halftime, so this play really like kind of swung this game a little bit, um, because like down three at the halftime, and you get the ball back, you got a chance to go down the field and take the lead. Um, the Falcons did not do that. The offense just completely betrayed them in the second half. Um, zero points in the second half. Um, Tampa would end up scoring 10 more to make it 30-17, to 17, and that would end up being the final. Um, just, uh, you know, offense looked looked okay in the first half, um, and the Marlon-Davidson interception to make it 20-17 to 17 was obviously giant, but the second half offense, it just fell apart. Um, yeah, there's not really much, uh, much more to say about it. Um, on the day, I guess the offense was just overall just average and probably slightly below average because of how rough they looked in the second half. Uh, look at the numbers now. Matt Ryan goes 30 for 41, zero touchdowns, 297 yards. Not a great game, but nothing terrible either. Uh, Cordero Patterson was um, really good in this game once again. Very good running the ball, 13 carries for 78 yards, and he also had three catches for 18 yards. Solid game for him. Mike Davis had a pretty good game. First one in a while for him. He had four carries, 32 yards, and a touchdown. Eight yards to carry. Not bad. Uh, we'll move on to receivers. Russell Gage had a day. Um, 11 catches for 130 yards. Uh, Kyle Pitts, um, just four catches for 48 yards. Nothing great. Zacchaeus, three for 44. Um, and, yeah, that's about it for the receivers. Uh, defense, I think, in this game, they played... They played reasonably well. I mean, the Buccaneers are obviously very good on offense. Um, it's no secret there. So, I mean, giving up 30 points to them is not um, not some heinous crime. Um, I think they, they did enough to keep the Falcons in the game. I'll say that. So, the defense, they played fine. Uh, but the offense just couldn't get anything going in the second half. And that was their eventual downfall. Falcons lose 30-17. to that's enough of those birds. We'll move on to the other birds of the National Basketball Association. Yes, the Atlanta Hawks. Um, and they had a pretty interesting week. They had one infuriating loss on Friday. Um, they played, let's see, they played one, two, three, four games since the last time we talked. They beat the Pacers on Wednesday night, 114 to 111. Um, Kevin Herter got away with a huge foul call at the end of this game um, that really just uh, kind of propelled the Hawks to the win. And I'm not saying the Hawks were lost this game if it got called, but it might have been a little bit different. Um, Kevin Herter had a pretty funny post-game comment saying that he has never fouled anyone in his life and that he didn't know what they were talking about, which is a great way to go about it because he definitely got away with uh, maybe two fouls on the same play. Um, so, yeah, uh, Hawks win 114-111. to 111. And then Friday night against the 76ers, um, pretty big game, honestly. Friday night, uh, Hawks got their their uh, 404 yellow throwback Hawks jerseys on, rematch of the Eastern Conference semifinal. Pretty big game, and uh, it was it was um, just a quite I don't even know how to describe this game. Hawks looked pretty great on offense throughout the entire night until they got to the fourth quarter. Um, you know, they had two quarters where they scored 30 points. Uh, they led going into the fourth quarter. Um, but once they got into the fourth, things just kind of fell off the cliff in a big way. They got outscored 20-9 to nine in the fourth. 
and they scored four points in the final seven minutes of the game. That allows Philly to come back. They win 98-96. to Just an absolutely infuriating loss. Um, just the offense was just so bad in the fourth. Um, a lot of it was because they had the you know, second unit was out there to start the fourth, um, which, you know, that's going to happen sometimes. But even when Trey and the, and John and everybody, and the Herder, came back onto the court to finish out the game, things did not get better. But, yeah, moving on um, from the atrocity on Friday night, uh, Hawks did have another rough one on Sunday against the Hornets. Uh, 130-127 to loss. Um, I didn't get to watch any of this game, honest, to be honest with you. Um, I was keeping up with it on my phone periodically. Wasn't able to watch, though. And it uh, just didn't seem like a, a, a fun game, um, especially defensively. The Hawks scored, this is pretty wild, both teams scored 30 points in every single quarter of this game which is something you don't see very often. It's kind of interesting to, to see. But, uh, yeah, the Hawks' defense kind of was was what betrayed them in this one. I mean, the Hawks scored 35 points in the fourth quarter, and they lost. So, yeah, I mean, John Collins had a really good game, 31 points. Um, Trey was also good with 25 points, 4 of 10 from 3, 15 assists. Herder had 28. I mean, offense was everywhere in this game. And it's especially a pretty bad loss because um, Hornets were without LaMelo Ball. And Terry Rozier, two of their um, two of their better players and two of their good guards. Uh, so I mean, they had to roll out Ish Smith and Kelly Oubre as their starting guards. And I mean, they they cooked the Hawks. Kelly Oubre had 28 on 11 to 17 shooting, six of 10 from three. I mean, he's a good player. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I mean, the Hawks paper is supposed to win this game without two of um, Charlotte's better players not playing in this game. So we'll move on from that one. Monday night, the Hawks. Get a much-needed bounce-back win in Minnesota, 121-110. to Trey goes for 29. Um, he uh, rebounds Clint. He had 16 rebounds. Trey had 11 assists. Uh, Collins um, had an all-right game, not great by his standards. 13 points, 6 rebounds, 5 of 13 from the field. Um, Timothy TLC, I'll just call him TLC. I don't feel like trying to pronounce his last name, but TLC had one of his best games of the year, 23 points. 7 of 14 from 3, and um, 8 of 18 from field goal. And uh, the Hawks had a season high in threes in this game, actually, making 25 out of 49 for 51% from 3. If you do that, you're going to win a vast majority of the time. So, yeah, huge bounce-back win for the Hawks. They have a few days off, actually. they got Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday off this week in preparation for a big game on Friday night against the Nets at home. Um, that should be a doozy of a game. Um, and yeah, then they got the Rockets and the Magic. Schedule lines up a bit from there. But a big game on Friday against the Nets. So look forward to that. They'll have three days of rest get ready for it too. So that's a pretty big advantage for them. Uh, yeah, so that'll uh, do it for our Atlanta Hawks talk. Um, so yeah, not much going on this week except for against the Nets really. Didn't really realize we had three days off in a row. Uh, but we'll move on from there and uh, get into some Braves talk. For the first time in a minute, uh, the Braves were just kind of actually forced to make some moves um, at the at the non-tender deadline. And um, with the lockout um, coming, the they actually did make one free agent signing. Um, so we will, we will um, start out with the free agent signing. Um, it was Kirby Yates 
who is a relief pitcher who was with the Toronto Blue Jays last year, but he actually did not even throw a pitch for them because he tore his UCL in spring training and had to get Tommy John surgery. Uh, so he was out for all of last year. He missed most of 2020 as well with a different injury. Um, but the Braves signed him to a two-year deal worth $8.25 million. Um, and it's a pretty interesting structure of the way the Braves did it. Um, it says Yates will make $1 million in 2022 before earning $6 million in 2023. The deal also includes a $5.75 million club option for 2024. That includes a $1.25 million buyout. So altogether... Kirby Yates is going to at least make $1.25 million over these next two years. Uh, the Bra- this is this is an interesting signing because this is kind of a signing that's really focused on 2023 more than 2022. Um, obviously, they're hoping that Yates is going to be able to pitch a little bit in 2022, but um, he is not going to be ready for the start of the season with this Tommy John surgery. And um, he looks like a guy that's going to probably show up midseason. And that explains why he's only going to make $1 million next year and $6 million in 2023 because he will be fully ready to go in 2023. Um, so that's that's why the structure is the way it is. Um, really just kind of, this is kind of a move for 2023 more than anything. More, more than 2022 really it is. Um, I mean, it would be awesome if Yates could come in next year and provide a little bit of the bullpen. But, you know, I can't really expect too much, especially with the guy coming off Tommy John. It, it usually takes them... Uh, for the year after they return for them to really like return to form um so maybe we'll get a like hopefully like 20 to 25 solid innings out of kirby next year i would take that and run if um he could come back mid-season and do that that'd be great but um you know not expecting too much of him in 2022 the main expectation comes in 2023 Uh, but now we'll get into some of his career numbers and um he's had some very impressive seasons as a reliever and even as a closer uh, for the San Diego Padres. Um, like I said, in 2021, didn't pitch at all. In 2020, he only pitched four and a third innings. Um, he wasn't very good, but he was also injured, so do with that what you will. And uh, now I want to talk about his 2018 and 2019 seasons, which are his best years by a lot. Um, in 2020, or in 2018, um, he had 63 innings pitched, the 214 ERA. 90 strikeouts, a 180 ERA plus. He was awesome, a 254 FIP. Very good. And in 2019, he was even better. A 1.19 ERA, led the National League in saves with 41 over 60 and two-thirds innings. Um, 101 strikeouts, which is very good. A 354 ERA plus, which means that he was 254 times better than the average pitcher in 2019, a 1.30 FIP. He was absolutely incredible in 2019, probably the best reliever in baseball. But that was 2019. Um, Like I said, didn't pitch a lot in 2021 and um, missed most of 2020 with injury. So it is not very likely that he's the same guy that he was. Um, On opening day this year, he will be 35. So 35 in 2022. And will be 36 in 2023. So he's definitely getting older. But I still think that he is definitely capable of being a solid big league reliever. Probably not uh, at the level that he was in 2018 and 2019. Where over these two years, he pitched in 123 innings. Or 124 pretty much. And had a 167 ERA um, with uh, nearly 200 strikeouts. 
So yeah, he was awesome in those two years. I'm not expecting him to be that good, but um, you definitely could expect him to be solid. Um, maybe not next year, but definitely in 2023. So moving on from there, um, we will talk about the non-tenders that happened at the non-tender deadline. Um, a quick explanation of the non-tender deadline is that all of the players that are currently in the arbitration stages of their contract um, have the teams have the option to either decline or pick up the options to tender them a contract and have them be part of the team. That's three years of arbitration that all these guys have that are currently in there. So guys like Dan Spear in arbitration, Max Freed, uh, Mike Soroka are in arbitration. And those are like the no-brainer guys that you just easily pick up. Um, but they did decline three guys' contracts in 2022. Um, two of them were kind of obvious candidates to be non-tendered. And uh, one was a bit of a surprise, but nothing that moves the needle like um, that crazily. Uh, so, Johan Camargo got non-tendered along with Richard Rodriguez. And then Jaciel De La Cruz, who hasn't pitched in the big leagues at all, got non-tendered. Uh, we'll get into Camargo first. Camargo was a non-tendered candidate last year, and they kept him around. And this year, it uh, just just seemed that it wasn't going to work out. I mean, Camargo got 16 at-bats in the big leagues this year, and he went 0 for 16. Didn't have a hit all year. He walked twice. He had a... 111 OPS, a negative 67 OPS plus. Um, this is a very small sample, um, so starting out 0 for 16, we'll do that. Um, but it wasn't a consistent 0 for 16. He honestly probably got dealt a bad hand for being sent up and down the shuttle from Gwinnett to Atlanta over and over and over again. Um, but yeah, kind of, he was a candidate non tendered. He actually did make um, the Braves. Uh, NLCS team due to the like the Sorry Solaire injury and um, stuff like that. So he um, he was part of the World Series team for a good part of the run. Um, but he after getting on tendered the other night, he did sign that very night with the Philadelphia Phillies to a I think it was a guaranteed major league deal for like a million and a half dollars. So I mean good for them or good for him rather. Um, I don't really see why the Phillies did that, but um, well, um, good for Camargo, I'll say. Uh, move on to Richard Rodriguez. Um, he was a guy, he was a trade deadline acquisition, probably the biggest trade deadline acquisition out of the um, five that they made, which is kind of crazy, seeing how the season turned out and the heroics of the other guys down the stretch and in the playoffs. Um, but Rich Rodriguez got traded from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the deadline. Um, when he got traded for, he was having a really good year. Um, a 2.82 ERA with the Pirates over 38 innings and 33 strikeouts, which was really good. He had a good FIP, all that stuff. He was striking out enough guys. And then he came to Atlanta, and honestly, the numbers on their face aren't terrible. He pitched in 27 games, 26 innings, and had a 3.12 ERA. And uh, you see that, and you think that's not bad at all. He's probably a pretty solid reliever. Thing is, though, in those 26 innings, he had nine strikeouts. Only nine. That ballooned his FIP to 6-1-7 with the Braves. And he started to give up a ton of home runs late in the year. Ended up giving up six in total with the Braves. Giving him a 2.1 homers per nine, which is not playable. Um, and yeah, that combined with the strikeout stuff. And yeah, it, was, it wasn't going to happen. He didn't make any of the Braves postseason teams for any of the series. Um, 
despite him being like the big reliever acquisition at the deadline. And the problem was he just wasn't striking out anybody. And the home run stuff wasn't good either. You know, six home runs in 26 innings is not great. And nine strikeouts in 26 innings is even worse. And, you know, having that 6-1-7 FIP with a 3-1-2 ERA, it's kind of hard to do that. That means you're striking out nobody. And he had a 3.1 strikeout per nine rate. And um, he wasn't a huge striker guy in Pittsburgh, but he struck out enough guys to get by. And, um, like, he struck out 7.7 .7 per nine, which is, you know, not great by reliever standards, but um, it's fine. I mean, it's kind of weird because he was good in 20, really from 2018 to 2020, he was good. And through 20, 2018 through 2020, he had a strikeout per nine rate of 10.5. So, I mean, he was striking out like a, a guy per inning. Um, let's see, 185 strikeouts in 158 innings and a 302 ERA um, and a 372 FIP. That's perfectly fine. He just completely lost it, and I think it was because of the sticky stuff being banned from Major League Baseball. That is that caused his strikeouts to just fall off a cliff, and yeah, that's um, that's just not a recipe for success at all. So, uh, hopefully, Rich Rod can stick on somewhere else and have some success and find the strikeout pitch again, because um, he really, really needs that to succeed as a reliever in this league. So, um, uh, good luck to Rich Rod. Wish him the best. And we will now move on to the final non-tender of the Atlanta Braves. And that was Jaseel De La Cruz, who is a prospect still, has not cracked the big leagues yet. He actually has made the roster, but has not appeared in um, any big league games to this point. Um, and he was a guy that was not on my radar to get non-tendered, really. Um, I knew he had been pitching in AAA all year. And I did not know that he was having a rough year, and he was. So um, I'm pulling up his numbers right now. Definitely wasn't a guy that was on my radar to get non-tendered at all. But um, I'm having a bit of trouble here on baseball reference because he's in the minor league still pulling his numbers up. But um, yeah, he's he came up with the he got called up to the team last year. Um, didn't get to pitch any, but um, this year in Gwinnett only pitched in Gwinnett this year. Uh, pitched in 20 games, made 15 starts, and had a 7.19, or had a 7.03 ERA, ERA rather, uh, over 56 in the third innings pitched. Um, struck out a reasonably, a reasonably um, good amount of guys, um, but had a 1.7 whip. So he had a lot of walks in these innings. He gave up a good amount of hits as well. Um, walks per nine was up to 5.3, which has always kind of been an issue for him. Um, he's 24 years old still. Um, but yeah, he had a really, really bad year at AAA after having a somewhat solid 2019 um, in AA and uh, high A ball. But um, he just yeah, couldn't really adjust to the to AAA and had a rough year. Uh, wish Jaseel all the best. Wasn't really expecting him to get non-tendered. But um, yeah, hopefully he can stick on somewhere and uh, find his stuff and bounce back. So that's it for the non-tender stuff. And the last piece of news that we have to touch on is Marcel Ozuna, who is not getting suspended at all in the 2022 season. Um, here is the official report this is from Ken Rosenthal. MLB announces discipline for Marcel Ozuna under his domestic violence policy, an unpaid 20-game suspension that includes all 20 games, all 20 regular season games, that he served while on administrative leave from September 10th to the end of the 21 season, so he can return immediately at the start of the 2022 season. 
So they pretty much just retroactively suspended him um, using the games that he served under the administrative leave um, when, the, when they finally put him on that um, in September. So Marcelo Zuna is going to be eligible to play on opening day in 2022. Um, it is my assumption that he will be on the team um, as much as some people don't want that to happen, which I get. Uh, he is probably going to be like DHing for the Braves on opening day. I mean, no, I really do understand people not wanting Marcel to be part of this team anymore. I, I really do get it, but it's just it would just be too difficult to trade him. I don't think anybody would really want to do that, and um, cutting him just doesn't seem seems like lesser of an option because of all the money that's still attached to him. It is just something the Bra the Braves are just not going to do that. They're not going to. I think it's $48 million left on his deal. They're not just going to eat all that money. That's a lot of money. If it was like maybe one year deal with like $16 million left, then I could see it. But that's just not the case. It's $48 million still attached to him. And um, yeah, that's just the way the Braves operate. And they're always, um, they're always tight with their money. And um, that's just not in their character to just eat $48 million to have him not play for us anymore. So he will be on the team next year. Um, all all things are pointing towards that. Um, and also, didn't mention didn't mention this with the non-tender stuff, but they did tender Adam Duvall, which he was a question of bringing him back or not. So Adam Duvall, um, he will be on the team next year, and um, he's gonna his projection is around nine million dollars. So there's one outfielder for you next year. I still think the Braves should probably sign two more outfielders. Um, whether that's Soler and Rosario, or whether that is trading for somebody like Brian Reynolds, which would be like a huge trade, or bringing back one of those guys and some other guy that's out there still. I think you should bring back four, because, you know, you don't know if Acuna is going to be back on opening day. And um, even if he is back, having a guy like Adam Duvall on your bench provides great depth, and I, I think that's a worthwhile move for sure to get two more outfielders to add to this team. And assuming there's a DH, Ozuna will be in the DH spot. So uh, that'll do it for all the Braves talk in this episode. And um, there'll, be the, there'll be the last Braves talk for a while because of this lockout that is currently happening. Um, so it'll be the last time we talk about the Braves for a while until the PA and um, the owners figure this thing out. Um, but yeah, that'll do it for the Braves and that'll do it for this episode. If you made it this far listening, I really appreciate it, and I will see you in the next one.